How many times did Jesus invite himself to someone's home for a meal? Here's your options. One, three, five, seven, never. It's one of those. Three is wrong. Never is wrong. One is right. Now the question is, do you know who? Zacchaeus. Very good. Zacchaeus is the one time he invited himself over for lunch. Then take it a little bit further, okay? Because we're jumping into this text. Jesus is approaching Jerusalem for the last time, and he does a healing, a miracle. There is a lot of discussion, debate that comes out of it. What is the debate or discussion, the, uh, the, the whole discussion about in saying the details are contradictory is the idea. Exact number of people he healed, whether it was a man or a woman, whether it happened before or after he entered Jericho, the name of the man healed, the nature of the miracle, whether it was blindness or healing polio, whether the healing lasted or not. There's a lot of discussion that goes out of the text that this story comes from and it has to do with some things or things up there. Okay? It's one of those answers at least. <clears throat> Anybody know? Here's what's, what the bottom line is. They're going to use this passage, and the critics are going to say, this, see, the, the Bible just cannot be accurate. The different synoptics contradict each other. What do they contradict? Man or woman? The number is part of the answer, yes. It's two of them up here. One is the number. Got a guess for another one? Not whether the healing lasted or not. Not the name of the person. Not the nature of the miracle. You're winding it down. You're getting it narrowed down here. It's not number two. It's number three. Very good. Very good. It's whether it happened coming or going out of the city. And those who would find supposed contradictions, will they let it go? No, they're going to run with it. Okay? This is like a political campaign. If you find some type of negative, do you let it go? No, they don't let it go. It's like a bulldog that just bites its teeth in and hangs on. And so what you have in this story is the story that we're going to catch into this morning. Let's uh, head into Matthew, and then we're headed over to Luke. Actually, yeah, let's start in Matthew, then we'll head to Luke. We've got Jesus approaching Jerusalem for the very last time. That's where we're at in the story. As he's going, he's encountering different peoples, the ten lepers. He's getting some debate going and some questions about kingdom, family, marriage, divorce, children, things of that sort. The rich young ruler approaches him. And you remember this whole story, it's the rich young rulers saying, how can I get my, what do I do to make sure I'm inheriting in heaven? Jesus' conclusion, it's easier for the uh, camel to go through an eye of a needle than a rich person to get saved. And so there's all that discussion, which prompts, after he says that, the disciples to say, then who can be saved if the rich can't? And so Jesus goes on, talks more about that, and talks even about rewards then. Because after the rich young ruler had left, the disciples respond and say, oh, by the way, we've sacrificed and we're following is the rewards. Jesus gives this one parable that talks about the landowner that hires different people at different times of the day, but at the end of the day he pays everybody the same amount of money which um, probably isn't your greatest economic practice, but in this story that Jesus is trying to highlight some thoughts, and that is if you're following God, no matter when you follow God in the, in the time of your personal history or in history as an epic, that God will reward you, that the first shall be last, 
that God will be generous, that God is going to be gracious. He isn't going to say, okay, you were following me since you were a teenager. You're going to get more rewards than you who have been really faithful since you got saved in your 30s. He's going to reward all of those people and sometimes the same, sometimes not. In fact, the parable we're going to get in today talks about the rewards and what they're going to be based upon. It's not longevity, but it's rather a faithfulness. And so he's telling all these different comments, making these comments, and he continues on. And then he predicts, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. In Matthew chapter 20, where he gives that information, down in verses 17 through 19, he gives far more detail than he ever has before. Look, and we mentioned this last week. He says, the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priest. So he's saying, somebody's going to betray me. I'm going to be delivered to the rulers. They're going to condemn me to death. They shall mock me. They shall scourge me. They shall crucify me. Before he said they will put me to death, now he's being very specific how he's going to die. And then he talks about his resurrection as well. And so he's given them more information, though he's, he's saying, here's what's happening. And it's, it's not the first time he's mentioned he's going to die, but this one's far more detail. The disciples are terrified by this. They're, they're fearful. And Jesus continues. He's leading them down the road, headed for Jerusalem. Now, the terror and the, um, the apprehension goes away rather quickly because Salome comes and she is going to request of Jesus some <coughs> type of rewards for her two sons. And so we read about that story when we pick up and let's just jump down in verse 20 of chapter 20. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him, desiring a certain thing. He said, what will you? She said, grant that these my two sons may sit on the right hand and on the left in your kingdom. Jesus answered and said, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? They all say, yep, we can. He said unto them, you shall indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with, but to sit on my right hand on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to him for whom it is prepared of my father. And when the ten heard this, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. And Jesus then calls them and he teaches another lesson, which we'll get to. But here's what you got. Salome, then we mentioned this last week as we were winding out. She is the sister, we believe, of his mother Mary. So these guys are all cousins. She is a relative of his. And so that gives her a little bit more of clout coming and asking him of this request. Now the benefit and the good things is she is saying, I believe in the rewards. I believe in the kingdom. In fact, I believe so much that I want my sons to have special spots in this. And they are relatives. And by the way, is nepotism, is family benefit common in the ancient Near East. Oh, everything is run by family. It's who you know, different things like that. And so the, um, the Mark puts it down that the two brothers came and asked. So putting the passages together, you got mom and the brothers both asking at the same time, adding their voices to the request. Jesus has just been talking about his death. Now he talked about the rewards, then he talked about his death, and these guys ignore the death factor, and they look at the rewards only. Though they've been terrified, they're looking at how do we benefit out of this, rather than sympathy for Jesus or empathy towards him, they're looking at how they can be rewarded from it. Jesus responds and says, you don't understand what you're asking for. He's making that very clear. And then he says, you need to be baptized with the same baptism. We're not talking water baptism. We're talking what? His, the, um, I'm not even sure if it's a spiritual baptism. It is more of that idea that there's going to be a suffering. 
You're going to have to go through what I've gone through. And he's using a, a term that frequently they used in rabbinical writings, the idea of going through the deep waters, being baptized. And they use that, for that terminology. That's what I think he's talking about in this text. Uh, in this text. And they respond, they say, we, absolutely, we can go through anything you're able to go through. And the point is, they don't understand what Jesus is going through because when he said he's going to die and cru- be crucified, in the past, they've not believed him. And so uh, he, they respond, Jesus stresses the fact that it's going what I'm going to go through is real, real deep hardship. He mentions it a second time, as we already read. And he says, if I go through it, you will go through it. You're going to have this problem. And they did. They're both persecuted. They go through great trials and difficulties. We know of some of their history. And Jesus pointed out, he says, this is not mine to give to you the rewards and the promise of sitting at the seat because the Father is going to take care of that. But it's not mine to give. And some of the, so many of the scholars say the emphasis here as he's talking is at this time. Why would that be? Why is he saying this isn't something I can guarantee you at this time? What has to yet be proven? Let, let me back up. Who would, if this is the chief seat, who gets the rewarded seats? Who does, the, who does the person at a banquet or at a... Who do they give it to? The honored guest. How in this case would they prove if they're honored guest? What would be required to be elevated in the kingdom? What would Jesus require of a person now? Faithfulness, okay? Faithfulness, okay? Have they yet proven themselves to go through the trials and difficulties that are ahead? No. They have yet to prove themselves. They haven't gone through that. They're going to have to prove themselves faithful, and that's coming in the years ahead. So this isn't mine to guarantee to pass out at this time. Why? Because you have a burden on your own on, in your life to prove yourself. Now, the rest of the 12, they hear this. They're upset that they would even ask that because these guys are so close with one another. They're not any kind of group jealousy, and so they have all these issues between them. Even, by the way, the majority of them are related to one another. It's amazing that back in Bible days, family members, cousins and relatives didn't get along. We have prospered and we have evolved into such a good society that our relatives, we get along with all of our relatives real closely. Okay, there's no conflict. But in that time, they had this difficulty. They had a lot of angst and a lot of animosity and a lot of jealousy taking place. In fact, it'll show up not only now, but it shows up when they go into the Last Supper. Their argument at the Last Supper is going to be who of them is the greatest, that's why that plays into why they don't wash one another's feet because they're arguing over who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And so that would never happen in, in my family or your family that people would become jealous over how they're treated or how mom and dad showed favoritism. Well, these guys had that with Jesus. And so they have all these kinds of issues going on. And interesting, keep in mind what, how Jesus deals with this and then it still shows up within the next week. At the Last Supper. We'll, we'll remind you of that when we get there. Okay, so Jesus says to them, hey guys, you're all upset over each other, with each other because the, issue, the question is, which one of us is going to be elevated? Now watch what he does. Watch how he emphasizes something really, really, really important that still applies to 2016. Jesus called all of them unto him, verse 25, and said, you know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. Upon whom? Upon everybody. 
Okay, so somebody who is in, in authority, they use their authority. But it shall not be so among you. Whosoever will be great among you, what should he do? What's the passage say? Let him minister. And whosoever will be chief, let him be the, the servant. Even as, and then he gives the example. Who's the example? himself. The highest of authorities, what does he say? What did I do? As the highest of authorities in all of creation, I came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give my life a ransom. To the point that I would even sacrifice my own life for many people, this is where ministry is at. This is where servanthood is at, that you sacrifice for other people. And so Jesus is talking and using and how some people, when they get authority, they use the authority to expand their authority. And so he's condemning and he's saying very strongly in the original language and in English, this is not to be your characteristic. You guys are concerned about authority. I'm concerned about servant Two different viewpoints. Totally different, uh, different viewpoints. And he's going to make a comment that it not only applies to them, but it applies to us, whoever. This is engaging us now in 2016. He wants his servants not to be seeking to lead, but to be seeking to serve one another. Not to be recognized, but to recognize others. Not to be elevated, but to elevate others. Not to be pawned or fawned over, but rather to fawn over others. To rejoice with them, to weep with them, to sacrifice. So he then says, by the ultimate example, here's what you should do is what I'm doing. You should serve other people. And so he comments here about his atonement ministry, which is the highest of service to sacrifice for people to get born again. Now we take all that and put it together, and what we have is a conclusion here that the path to kingdom, kingdom prominence is serving others here on earth. So to be elevated and to be recognized by Jesus Christ in, say, let's say, 100 years from now, to where you and I are being commended, being rewarded, it's what we do now in serving one another. What we do on a Sunday when we gather, how we minister to one another instead of, okay, people minister to me. And so he's talking about a mindset. Let's bring all of this together. Okay, then we'll jump into another passage. Jesus' death is no accident. There are people who say, and they write, you've heard all about this from those who would attack the scriptures that it got out of hand. No, nothing's out of hand. Jesus knows what's going to happen. He knows all the details. He knows he's going to be betrayed. He can give all those details far ahead of time because this was planned by him, and yet, though it was planned and it was difficult, he goes through with it. Jesus says that he was going to minister and give his life a ransom for many. Okay, and so this is his motivation to help others spiritually. Let's go a little bit further. The same, those who follow Jesus will have the same harsh treatment he received. It should not surprise us that some people's jobs would be threatened. It should not surprise us that if we follow Jesus, some of our family members will attack us. They will accuse us. And what's interesting, that sometimes somebody's just sharing with me this morning this fact, that one of their family members was making comment that they don't like being around them. Why is that? Because whenever I'm around them, I feel guilty. Somebody who wasn't living for the Lord. Somebody who had, who had walked away. And they said, I don't like getting around these people because whenever I do, they make me feel bad. Well, the irony of the situation is those people didn't say a word. They didn't do any preaching. They didn't do any, any challenging what made the difference. Why did this person feel bad getting around them because they made me feel guilty? But they never said anything. The way they live. 
the way they live, how they live, how they talk. And sometimes people will do that with you. They'll attack, they'll accuse, they'll make statements about you, and you say, I never said anything. I never did anything. It's just by lifestyle, and so difference in that way. Serving others, to, serving others is the ultimate call from God Almighty, to serve others, to give our lives. All Christian leaders, including the apostles, are to serve others around them. This wasn't just them, it's the whosoever. That includes you and me. It's not just those who are in leadership positions have to think about serving. It's all of us need to think about serving. Let's take another, another step. Rewards in the future require consistent service now. And, and highlight words here, service now and consistent service now. Okay, it's not just, okay, um, you know, I can serve once. I'll serve, I'll serve on, on one day of the week, but the rest of the six days, it's mine. No, consistent service is going to bring reward. Let's uh, do this one, okay? The best way we can honor and glorify Jesus Christ, according to this text, is to do this. Seek to serve, seek to serve, seek to serve. Okay, by putting others ahead of ourselves. That is one of the premier ways that you and I would serve Jesus Christ and, see, and seek to honor him and please him where he's going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Is that easy? The bottom line is no. By, by the way, is it easy to serve your own family easier than serving many others? It's easy for you as a parent to serve. It's easy for you as a spouse to serve. And even those have con- problems. But we're just supposed to serve even others around us. And so we're supposed to make this. Our attitude is one of service, not being served. Boy, that would change a lot of things in life. Is serving and serving and serving as a mindset instead of being served, being served, being served. Let's take it a step further. Jesus now continues on his journey. Here's where we've got some problems in the text. In Matthew chapter 20, we continue in verse 29. As they departed from Jericho, a great multitude followed him. Okay, catch the words, okay, as he departed. We're going to see this different in a moment. Behold, two blind men sitting by the wayside, when they heard that Jesus passed by, they cry out, Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou son of David. And the multitude rebuked them, because they should hold their peace. But they cried the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou son of David. Jesus stopped. And he called them and said, What will you that I should do to you? They said unto him, Lord, that your, our eyes may be opened. He had compassion on them. He touched them. Immediately their eyes received sight. They followed him. Now, if we flip over to another text, let's do Luke. Okay, let's flip over to Luke. And watch, there's a little bit of a difference in this story, which some people will jump on and they'll say, See, you can't trust the Bible. We're in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, and we'll catch the story here. Luke 18, you look down, if you have paragraph headings, he's talked with the rich man, he foretells his death, and then down in verse 35. It came to pass that as he was come near unto Jericho, a certain blind man sat by the wayside begging. Okay, and hearing the multitude pass by, he asked what it meant. And they said, oh, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He cried, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And they which went before rebuked him that he should hold his peace. But he cried even the more, thou son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stood, commanded him to be brought to him. And when he was come near, he said, what will you have me to do? He said, that I might receive my sight. He said, receive your sight and thy thy faith has saved you. And immediately he received his sight, followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise unto God. There's a possibility these are two totally different accounts. 
<clears throat> However, it's the same location, same time, almost identical speeches recorded in both, and yet there's some contradictions here. So let's set up the scene. Let's figure out what's happening. He's moving on his way through the city of Jericho, headed towards Jerusalem. In order for you to get this and the next story, it is important for you to understand Jericho in Bible days and understand some of the topography as well as some of the history. Jericho was a famous city. By the time Jesus comes on the scene, it is a major city in the sense that uh, a large city in comparison, it's not the Harrisburg of the region, that would be Jerusalem, but it's a bigger city. It's a, it's a Hershey by comparison. It has a lot going on, and it's on its way towards the capital city. And in its, in its heyday, which is the time Jesus is there, it had grown because of Herod the Great, who was the king who was just before Jesus' birth, who tried to put Jesus to death. He had developed several different cities, and he had built them up with defenses, with... with um, uh, community projects to help sustain them and to help prosper the region. He had done some economic building. He was real famous for doing a lot of building. And so Herod the Great had built up the city. In fact, he had put one of his, his um, off-site palaces, one of his winter palaces or summer palaces, he had put over there. So frequently, he and his family would go there. Well, wherever the king would be, then that would create a lot of business around it. So Jericho suited his purpose as well. The, there is um, a difference here that you need to keep in mind. In Jesus' day, there was two Jerichos. There was one Jericho, and they, they were about a mile apart. One Jericho was the ancient site of Jericho that was only a little bit of a, it, it was, a, and, I, and I pick on it frequently, but it was like an ono. There was just a few things there. The, the bigger Jericho would have been like the Fredericksburg by comparison, where there would be more uh, activity going on. And they were only a mile apart, but you have old Jericho and you have new Jericho. Most of the writings, they kind of just forget about the old Jericho because it was just a nothing. It had been replaced. But there was a little village there, and some of the writings, like Josephus's, mentions the old Jericho and then the new Jer Jericho. So there's two of them that are in operation, if you would, at the time, but one is not business site. Um, Jericho is about 15 miles from Jerusalem, but it became a major stopping point for pilgrims who were headed for Jerusalem. Part of the reason is the topography. Where Jericho was, it was only 600 feet above sea level. Now in the next 1500, uh, 15 miles, you're going to go up some uh, 2,900 feet up in, in height. Which would do what to your breathing as you start going up? Okay, you become a little more laborious. It means that you're, you're basically going what direction? You're going uphill. So you would stop and get the meal or get refreshed or spend the night. Usually you're traveling right around 10, 15 miles a day if you're making good haste. Okay? And so this would be the stopping point for many, many pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem. Okay? Because now you're going to start on rough, rough, rough terrain. As well, not only was this last 15 miles real rough, it was a lot of rocks, a lot of... Um, a lot of hills, caves, it became the, uh, the famous spot for the different thieves and the different bandits. It was their hideout. So if you're going to get robbed, this is the road that you would get robbed on. Sometimes it is called the robber's road, in fact, in ancient writings. So that goes from Jericho to Jerusalem. So Jesus coming here, okay, and spending a little bit of time here talking with the blind man, talking with Zacchaeus, is no surprise. He's saying to Zacchaeus, what, what is he get before he leaves the city at Zacchaeus's house? 
He gets a meal. That's no surprise. Why? Because that's very normal. You eat in Jer- Jericho. You get your last stop at Chick-fil-A before you head up to Jerusalem. Okay? And so here they are. Now, add to it, historically, this is important stuff okay, with what happens with Zacchaeus. It is a Levitical city which means this is a spot where the Levitical priests would live during the year, but many of them would go to Jerusalem when their, uh, when their lottery number would come up that they would be called to, to uh, serve in the temple. Okay? And since it was close to the Jordan River, this made for great uh, trade because here's the Jordan River, Jericho is here, Jerusalem's over there. Any trade has to cross here. Now Jericho's there because that would be the city. Now you're coming into the Judean territory under the Jews and the Romans would, well, wherever you have trade coming and you have a little bit of a dock, you would have as well then tax collectors. This would be the spot you bring your import tax, your custom tax. So the city became very, very um, well populated with tax collectors because he was on the roads and on the route away from Jerusalem and to Jerusalem. So of your taxable towns, this became one of the major locations for tax collectors. All of it plays into the story of the Gospels. And so with all that in mind, here's what you got. You have the discussion that Jesus is either approaching Jericho or leaving Jericho. We read two different accounts. He was come nigh and as he was departing, this episode with the blind man. And so which one is it? Here's your different gospels, what they say. Matthew says as they departed. Mark says as they went out of. Luke says as they came near. Okay, well, which one is it? Okay. Oh, by the way, there's more argument. Some said, Matthew says there was two blind men. But according to Mark, there's blind Bartimaeus. According to Luke, a certain blind man. Now you got the problem with, is it two? Is it one? And both of the stories continue, starting with that number, and the pronouns continue, that Matthew has two all the way through. Mark and Luke have one person all the way through. Which one is it? Obviously, it means the Bible is filled with errors. The Bible has mistakes in it because the, uh, the, the authors couldn't even get this right. Well, Okay, let's use a little bit of common sense. These aren't contradictions. Could it be that when he says they're approaching Jericho, he could be referring to the old site that's just a mile apart and saying as they came out of this Jericho and we're going this way, that's a possibility and it wouldn't be an error. Could it be that they started as they approached, and this fits the story, the blind man they call out multiple times Could it be that as they were approaching, the conversation starts with the blind man? Hey, Jesus, Jesus, heal us. The crowds tell him to do what? Be quiet. And they tell him repeatedly in in the language to be quiet. They keep calling out. They keep calling out. And as they departed from the city, Jesus says, okay, what would you have me to do? Does that fit the scenario? The answer is yes. It's not, it doesn't have to be a contradiction. Okay, one or two blind men, why is this such a big deal? Okay, Matthew, okay, just because, just because he says, uh, because some of them say blind Bartimaeus or a certain blind man, and they focus on one person, that doesn't mean there wasn't more there. How many times have you told a story about some place you went, some place you did, and you talk about, and somebody could think, oh, you were by yourself, but actually you might have had a kid with you. But why don't you mention much about the kid being there? Because they weren't the main character. 
Okay? So we do it all the time. Sometimes we don't give all this information. Maybe Matthew is relaying what he actually saw. Matthew actually saw two guys. Matthew is recording what he recorded, what he saw, whereas was Mark there to see it, was Luke there to see it? No. What they write, we find out from later on that Luke went and did research to find out what was happening. Mark is probably picking up most of his story from Peter's eyewitness account. or So they're putting together post-event, going looking back, doing some research. And why would they mention a certain man or why would they mention Bartimaeus? Because isn't it reasonable that Bartimaeus in years gone by became a very well-known disciple? An important disciple? In fact, let me take you back. Look at the, how Bartimaeus is described in the, by Mark. Not only does it say his name, but what else do we get out of Bartimaeus? He gives us his family background. Well, that would make sense that if later on Mark's giving the story, he's identifying somebody that everybody in that region, the readers, could identify. That this was a fella. That doesn't mean there wasn't somebody with him. But if you're writing somebody, you're relaying an account, and you're telling them what happened to somebody they knew, you focus on the somebody they knew, yes? Okay, so you tie it together. So sometimes when we, when we come to these passages, people want to see contradictions. You know, sometimes it's just common sense makes it very clear that there's different possibilities. I understand. My perspective is it is inspired. It is accurate. There are no contradictions. So I'm going to automatically look for the reasonable explanations why there isn't contradictions because my faith says the word of God was without error. So starting with that premise, are there reasonable answers why they could have had coming in and going out and it's no contradiction? Absolutely reasonable. Could have gone all the way through. Could be the two Jerichos. It could be that Bartimaeus was the spokesperson. So the stories are focusing on the one person who spoke out. And the other was the silent partner. And the silent partner gets forgotten over a period of time. And so Matthew puts them in, but the others don't. Does it change the account? Here's the question. Does it change the story? Not at all. This, the emphasis of the story is talking about Jesus' ability. Here's what you've got. Whether it be one or two at the time, let's keep it at the two, with Bartimaeus being the primary speaker. So Jesus is coming through. Blind men can't see. They ask what's going on. They tell him Jesus. They call out, have mercy on us. Now, catch the story. What do they use for? Look at the, look at the passage. This is, this is critical. What did they address Jesus as? Son of David. What does that tell you? What is, what is Bartimaeus thinking? Messiah. How do you know that? Well, either he had to do a lot of research without being able to read. He had to do a lot of research into Jesus' background for the last weeks and months and do some you know, genealogical studies on Google. Either he did that or he has in his heart, and so he knew Jesus' family history, or he just, he's accepting the idea that Messiah has to be from the genealogy of David. And I'm going to accept, I'm going to jump to the first, I, or the second one. I don't think he did a lot of research just to find out if Jesus' genealogy went that far back. Because to do that, you'd have to go to Jerusalem, you'd have to go to the genealogical records, you would probably have to be able to read, okay? Most people didn't read, number one. And number two, a blind man would have a harder time reading. Okay, so I'm going to assume it's the second. That by saying thou son of David, he believes in his heart that Jesus is the promised Messiah. 
Okay, so that's a display of faith, which is very, very important. He, by the way, he would know scriptures if he, if from little on. One of the things that is described about Messiah in the Old Testament is he would restore sight to the blind. Okay, that makes sense. If you believe that Jesus is Messiah, you're going to go back in your theology and you're, you're going to remember passages that apply to you in particular. Blind people, what's my hope? What's my hope? Messiah. Messiah is my hope according to Isaiah 35.5. And so he's going to call out. This is his display of faith. This is where Jesus says your faith has restored your sight or made you whole. This is the idea where it comes from and how that's stated. They keep on calling. The people tell them to be quiet. They shush them. They tell them that not to make noise. They call out even louder. And when Jesus stops after a bit and the, the verbiage all the way through is that they kept on calling repeatedly. Jesus ignored them for a period of time. When he commands that, he stops and commands them. Mark records this. The crowds turn to him and or them and says, hey, be of good comfort. Don't be afraid. He's calling you. This is the same crowd that said just moments before, hush, hush, be quiet, be quiet. Okay, don't say anything. Now the crowd's saying, get up there, get up there. He's calling you. He wants you to come. And so Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do? I want to receive my sight. That was an obvious. And Jesus laid hands on him. Immediately the sight comes back. So in this story, Jesus makes the comment about your faith being whole. The man obviously glorifies God. You and I, we would be ecstatic. Those who, those who are there, they glorify God. Now Jesus says to the man, we have it recorded here. He says, go your way. Go your way. But the man doesn't. The man doesn't go his way. He follows Jesus. He becomes a devoted follower. Now that could be the Bartimaeus that later on everybody hears about. They know his story. He's probably shared it with people. He's, he could be known to the Romans. That's why Mark's writing them. Maybe he traveled with the apostles and headed over to Rome. And so they have an idea. And so that's why he's identifying the story. We don't know. The significance about the story is real simple. Okay, there's a lot of things. Let me give you a comparison. You do this in your mind. Just in the last chapter, you have two people approaching Jesus. You have a rich man approach Jesus. You've got a blind man approach Jesus. Okay, they both ask Jesus for some assistance. Okay, that's as far as the, as the, the um, similarities go. They both approach Jesus with basically a question asking for something. Okay? Beyond that, what do you have for, con for contrast? If you were going to preach the story between the rich man and between Bartimaeus, the blind man, what would you say the two, what's different between them? There's several things right off the bat. What does Bartimaeus ask for? Give me my sight. What does the rich man ask? Okay. Uh, Rich, you, you, your statement. What can, I do? what can I do? Okay. Bartimaeus is saying, you need to give me sight. The rich man is saying, what do I need to do for myself? Is there a contrast that way? Are those two different thoughts? Absolutely. One is asking Jesus to help him. One is asking Jesus how he can help himself. Major contrast. Major contrast. Okay, here we go. The beggar becomes very rich spiritually. The rich man, how would, you, how would you contrast this? He becomes very poor spiritually. Okay, the beggar, he admits his need. The rich man, what does he say when Jesus says, keep all the commandments? What does he say? Do you remember? 
I have. I've kept them from my youth, remember? Okay, so the, instead of admitting need, what does he do? Okay, he's bragging. He's bragging about his deeds. Okay, here's, here's another contrast between the two. The one believes in Jesus. Okay, and by the way, do both of them highlight the fact Jesus had compassion on him? They do. Do you remember? This one says Jesus had compassion, laid hands. Do you remember what it says when, about the rich man? And Jesus had, had loved this man and says, okay. So there's, there's not a difference in Jesus' compassion. He loves them both. That should have been one of the similarities I highlighted. Okay, this man, the blind man, believes on Jesus, the son of David. What does the rich man do? Okay, he turns away. He doesn't believe. He goes his own way. In fact, th- what's the emotional response? What's the contrast between the two? Okay, exactly. The rich man goes away unhappy, or the word you used, grieving. What is the what does Bartimaeus do? Okay, you've got you've got the contrast. Experience great joys, great grief. Why? It's not it's not Jesus's response to them. He loved them. He was willing to engage both of them. The contrast is how do they respond to Jesus Christ? Let's make some lessons here. Then let's talk about the little guy. Jesus does not always respond to our calls for assistance right away. Okay. Would you say that's true from your own experience? Okay. Yes, no. Okay. Jesus doesn't respond. Now, what we don't want, and, he, and you will talk with other young Christians, what is the erroneous conclusion that we could make, Jesus isn't responding to me right away. What could we conclude that would be wrong? He doesn't, he, yeah, he doesn't care. We don't, we, we've got we've to make sure that we explain this. Jesus not responding right away doesn't mean he doesn't care. He does care, okay? Do you think it's wise for you as a parent to respond to every one of your children's calls when they say, oh, I can't do it, and you do it for them? Is that wise to take it out of their hands every time? No, why not? They won't learn. Sometimes they need to deal with, and sometimes do they need to deal with the problems themselves to learn how to deal with people? Yes, yes, okay. So we look and we say, okay, sometimes it is good for us to continue in a trial or a difficulty so as, why would God, why would God not respond to us right away? He might have something better. Is there another reason as well? That's, a, that's one reason. Okay. okay, for us to admit our need, okay, and could it be that delaying, does delaying cause you to become more dependent? Because as he delays, you become more desperate. Okay? And so does God at times know he needs to get us into desperation? The answer is, yeah, because you and I, we are sometimes, sometimes, we are like that rich man. Even as believers, sometimes we want to know what I can do for myself. Instead of casting all my cares upon him for he cares for me, sometimes it's just like, well, Jesus, I need your help so I can figure this out. Okay? We don't pray it that way out loud. But do we ever act that way? I, I, no, well, you don't. Okay, I'm sure you don't. I do. There are times where it's like, okay, Lord, I need wisdom so I can figure this out by myself. 
And it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Sometimes we need to be delayed. We need to be put off just so we learn persistence and we learn even greater dependence. Jesus often waits to respond until we fully admit our need for help. That's a reality of our life, and that's okay. That's good. That's good for us. Jesus can perform miracles in his time, anywhere, any place, with any number of people. Which is very, very important for you and me today to remember that just because Jesus is helping those people on that side of the auditorium doesn't mean he's too busy that he can't help us in this side of the auditorium. Oh, wait a minute. The sun is shining on the other side of the world. You know, at this time of the day, it's midnight, you're distressed. The sun is shining on the other side of the world, so Jesus is dealing with the people who are awake. And he does it, can he also deal with you who's still awake in the darkness? The answer is yes, okay, which is amazing that he can do that. Jesus can help more than one person at one time, which is really refreshing. When Jesus works in us, what should be our response? Blind man, what was his response? Thankful, glorifying God, giving praise. Just He's excited. He's thrilled. He's, in fact, he is so thrilled that when Jesus says, go your way, what does he do? He wants to be with Jesus. He wants to be closer to Jesus out of gratitude of what Christ has done. Now, that, this one is easier for us. This one's easier when we have a God moment. When we have something happen where all of a sudden we have a bill and we find out that when we have to get this thing replaced, God replaces with the exact amount of what we need and it's an amazing event that just happens, boom, 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 and it's just like, wow, that is amazing. God cared for me. That's cool. That's neat. We get excited. When God answers our prayers and you've got the medical tests and they come back and everything's negative and it was a wrong reading, you're excited that God took care of that thing and we're thrilled when it happens to us. In this text, there's another lesson. When Jesus works in us, we should have joy. When Jesus works blank, we should have joy. In others. Okay, when he works in others, we should still be joy-filled. We should still be excited. Okay, in other words, we're looking with others. And that goes right back to what did he just preach the previous paragraph? We should be involved in serving others, caring for others, being involved in their lives, not just our own. So you have all these lessons that continue. Now, here's where some will take this story. Okay, and I'm not saying they're wrong. It's just that some will take this and say, okay, this is a precursor. This whole event is, a, um, is an advertisement for what's going to happen ahead. Okay, now if we make an analogy, which could be made here. Okay, if we make an analogy, what is Israel spiritually? What is their condition? Okay, okay let's, let's make a comparison analogy between the blind man Bartimaeus and Israel. Okay, Israel is spiritually poor, blind. Okay, that's Israel. What should they be? Where should they be going for help? They should be going to the Lord Jesus Christ for help. Okay, that's the story that some will say. This is a picture story saying to the nation of Israel, because in the next, in the next day or two, he's going to be coming into Jerusalem. Okay, and so the point is they are blind, but like the rich ruler, they refuse to see their need. So you've got all these comparisons going on. They become, they have to choose. Am I a rich ruler or like the blind man? Well, they choose to be like the rich ruler. Jesus is willing to offer help. He is willing to meet their, their needs, but he wants them to specifically express their need. If they are like the rich man who felt very, self, um, very self-satisfied, um, successful, which was Israel, if they reject him, okay, they're going to experience what? 
grief. But if they're like the blind man where they cast themselves upon Jesus, they're going to experience great joy. The problem is they are more like the rich man. We know what's going to happen in the next week. In the next week they're going to be like the rich man. We don't need you, Jesus. And in their, in their, uh, in their pride, they're going to reject Jesus Christ. Right after this, Jesus has his encounter with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus' story, you all know because you sing the song. Okay, you learned, you, those of you who grew up in church, you learned it from a child. But there is a lot that plays into this story. There's a whole lot of different, different lessons that comes out. This is the only time Jesus invites himself for a meal. This is a, a, a tremendous story. Now, now, I'll just throw this out and we're going to stop. The city is filled with two types, two classes of people. We're in Jericho yet. What two classes of people that we already highlighted? Okay, um, business-wise, career-wise, two types of people. Okay, you've got the tax collectors and you've got the other major group, the priests. Okay, if you were Messiah and you were following political correctness, which home would you go to? A tax collector or a priest? To the priest. If you were the crowd, which, and you were walking with Messiah, who would you expect Messiah to go to? The, ta- the priest or the tax collector? Well, you're the, you're the bigger crowd, not the believers. You would think the priest. Whose place does he go to? The tax collector who is considered by the priest to be a big, 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 yeah, that's what, that's what the big sinner. Really big because as a tax collector, He is a what to Israel? He's a traitor to our nation. Surely, if the Messiah is going to his home, what's he going to do to him? (laughs) He's going to eat him up. Okay. So it's a really, it's a story that has total twists. That isn't this amazing. Jesus doesn't do the expected. Isn't that shock you? Okay. That Jesus does just the opposite with one purpose in mind. To serve others. Okay, to seek and to save that which is lost. And that's where he concludes the story. Let's pick up there next week.